Welcome to Making Sense of MarTech and a regular set of conversations with some of the most interesting people in marketing, technology, and advertising. I'm Juan Mendoza. I write the MarTech Weekly Newsletter, a weekly email that covers the most important shifts in marketing technology. People who work in the world's largest media, tech, marketing, and advertising companies read it. Today, I'm joined by Ben Mosier. He goes by the moniker of Hired Thought. He's a writer, podcaster, and a strategy consultant who focuses on the principles behind Wardley mapping. It's a novel way to work out how to connect your strategies to your customers, their needs, and by looking how those strategies could be applied to the market. I featured numerous articles from Ben on Wardley mapping and strategy, including uh, one of his more recent articles entitled, Nobody Cares About Your Precious Framework. We talk about the dysfunctions of product and digital teams, how Wardley mapping works, and creating a sense of situational awareness to help teams understand their customers and their competitive landscape. And so I bring you now, Ben Mosier. Hi, Juan. Thanks for having me. So let's dive right in. Tell me where you've worked uh, and how you arrived at uh, the principles around Wardley mapping. What was that process like? Yeah, I think over the course of my career, I've had a couple big shifts in thinking where I've connected to something like a framework like the theory of constraints uh, or Kinevin and complexity, or in this case, Wardley mapping. And I've just had a complete transformational shift in the way that I'm able to perceive uh, my own role in the systems that I work, but also how the overall thing is working, how, how I can even intervene within it to make it more purposeful. Um, I started out as a systems administrator. Uh, we were dealing with some pretty large scale IT systems. I thought I was really interested in the, in the technical side of things, making servers and computers do what I wanted them to do. But then I started realizing that there are people here as well. So it's not just a technical system, it's a socio-technical system. Mm. And over time, what I found was that the social side of that, the people, were a little bit more interesting, I think, than the technical side of things, at least for me. So I discovered Worley mapping as a result of uh, honestly being confronted with a really difficult, messy situation. Uh, I was working at a pharmaceutical company, and we were presented with the opportunity to spend some money um, and to invest in some local infrastructure which for the people that were on my team, that we were really excited about having the chance to play with computers and put things in server racks and I don't know, just wire stuff up, all the technical stuff that would just you know make our hearts sing. But then we had to think about the consequences of those decisions and their likely impact on the five plus year timeline. And well, we'd heard about this guy by the name of Simon Wardley. We've been following him on Twitter, at Swardley. And we're like, this guy seems to know some things that we don't about how to make decisions like this. So we gave it a shot. We went and read the book. We went into a conference room and we kind of locked ourselves in there for like two weeks on end, trying to figure out how to even do the thing in order to help us come to a you know, decision about whether or not to take on the funding that we were considering and to actually do this investment. And you know what, honestly what happened was we kind of hit a brick wall about uh, you know, maybe a week and a, a three quarters in or so where we realized that we did not have a strategy. We did not do anything but come into work every day, respond to the loudest 
requests, the things that people were shouting for us to do, you know, and the, and good people, right? Like that just want to get their work done. But we did not have an intention for the systems that we were, we were in. And so step zero was basically recognizing what those systems were, kind of accounting for them to see where they currently were in the world and, and in terms of our understanding of them. And then over time, gradually coming to have an intention for each part of that system. And the result was clarity. We could make decisions, not because we were following trends. Uh, we, weren't, we weren't just doing what we felt was most comfortable to us. We were making decisions because we understood the full context and we had a reason for each way that we were designing the system. We were making it more purposeful with every move. So in the end, we actually like decided to kill that project because we realized that by doing that work, it would deprive us from doing the things, that, uh, basically deprive the system of us doing things on it, in it that mattered. And we realized that we were just playing the wrong game by going down that pathway. And so we wrote up a report, shared our findings. And I think that that impact resulted in way better outcomes over the following years. Um, and so that's how I got sold on the method and a little bit about how I got here. It's, it's interesting that you mention uh, the reactivity that can happen in um, a lot of teams and companies, particularly when it comes to technology. You have different stakeholders, you have different people. They have their demands. They have the things they're trying to get done. And a lot of teams end up being on the back foot and uh, not having a clear direction, a clear strategy for what's going to actually create value in the business, what's going to solve and meet customer needs. And so it's interesting how your experience was sort of derived out of that and then applied within a specific business context as well, when you were obviously were able to see the fruits of that. But how about we unpack the Wardley mapping doctrine a little bit? Um, you mentioned that uh, it was developed by Simon Wardley. Uh, you know, he was a, uh, a CEO. He, he's done a lot of leadership across different businesses and industries. He, he sort of d developed this, this doctrine, this, this, uh, this, these frameworks to really to help almost any business in any vertical. It is very portable, um, the concepts there. But how would you sort of explain the, the core tenets of ma Wardley Mapping Doctrine? Where would you sort of start and why does it really exist? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the place that I tend to start with is it's largely about knowing things, like full stop. Mm. Because knowledge is indeed power in the sense that if you have knowledge that others in the competitive landscape don't, that is an asymmetry. That is something that is in your favor. When you're making decisions, you can account for things that others can't account for. So from a competitive standpoint, it is strictly about knowledge. But from a competence standpoint, and I think this is what speaks to a lot of uh, folks in the C-suite particularly, is let's actually understand what our intention is for every part of the system that we manage. And let's actually embed intentionality into every layer of the organization. So it's not just me making decisions from the standpoint of authority at the top of the, you know, the layers of hierarchy, but the people in the organization are able to describe within the context that they're operating why they are doing the things that they're doing. And there's lots of, this isn't unique to worthy mapping. Like there are lots of frameworks that talk about being like doing things on purpose. Um, I, I think there's kind of this idea that uh, in, in lean and perhaps like the Toyota production system and so on, like the idea is that you should be able to go talk to anyone on the line, you know, where the work is actually happening and ask them what's going on. And they, they ought to be able to tell you why what they're doing connects to the big picture, how it translates up. Um, and the thing is, 
in most organizations, it, that's just not the case, uh, especially in the West. What we have is, I think, um, a lot of decision making by authority uh, because it's easy, um, it's clear, and it's relatively simple. But what it does is it kind of boils down decision making and being intentional into just like a who can follow my instructions the best kind of problem. And I think that's, first of all, not taking advantage of the huge uh, human potential that every organization um, has that could potentially have, I should say. And it also kind of pretends that one person in, or in an organization can know the answers to everything, um, or, or rather that only a few people in the organization can know and have the answers to everything. And the truth of the matter is that's just not the case. Like, and, and just examine it from a feedback loop standpoint. I, I think it's something called an, the iceberg principle. It's like at the upper levels of management, um, very few people at those upper levels will understand what is actually happening in the organization because only so much information gets filtered up. It's like a physics problem. You can only hear so much. People can only say so much to you and layers and layers and layers of like politics and you know trying to do the right thing by only sharing the right sets of information. And like, it's a very lossy process, the feedback loop in any given organization, especially one organized hierarchically. So put all that aside for a moment and let's ask the question, how do we know whether or not what we're doing is purposeful? Worthy mapping suggests that we should understand the context in which we're operating first. Mm. And then we should also be sharing that context with others around us so that they can see it too. So from the standpoint of organizational capabilities, we want our people to be able to think strategically. And there's some interesting lines of thought around managers doing strategy instead of executives, but um, maybe that's a topic for another day. But then if you start to have other people around you besides yourself aware of the context in which we're operating, then what we can start to expect of them is that they'll have opinions about what we ought to be doing. And yes, you'll provide guidance. Yes, you'll provide a general direction and a purpose and all these kinds of things, but like they will have opinions about what the right move is. And so key toward the mapping is a perhaps unusual comfort with transparency. Why did we make that decision? Well, in a lot of cases, the reason we make decisions are because nobody else is gonna make it. Nobody else is gonna take the risk of making a hard call. Um, and oftentimes we may not actually have a good rationale for making certain decisions. So you have to get over that like perfection urge to be the person who knows all the, all the things, all the answers. Um, but what we're trying to do is enable the people to work with us and make decisions together, looking at the same kind of picture, having a common language to work with. So if I were to say what the, tenets of the worthy doctrine are at, at their most basic kind of ideas. I'd say it's designing purposeful systems and uh, frankly, getting comfortable with the idea that you there's a lot to know and not oversimplifying it. So actually getting into the detail. There's, there's heaps to unpack here, Ben. And there's a few things I, I, I find quite curious about worldly mapping. Uh, the first is how it measures strategy, uh, collecting inputs and data and, and, you know, analytics insights, things like that, meshing that with 
organizational ways of working and the systems operations and how those two things interplay together because uh, your your example there about the iceberg you know as information is filtered down from executives right through to managers and line managers and then to staff and the people actually do the work you know there's a there's a lot of um, information lost it's there's a lot of abstraction that happens um, you know top to bottom but then you have a, a lack of understanding of purpose when that happens, the person who executes the work, the person, let's say a developer or somebody who's um, creating a campaign or uh, wh whatever that could be, uh, that person has uh, often in larger organizations can have a disconnect between what's the purpose, what's our context, what, what are we trying to achieve here? And so uh, it's a, quite interesting that worldly mapping kind of is like a landscape almost. Uh, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on that. You're creating sort of this lay of the land. Everyone can see a landscape. They can see everything that's in there, the buildings, the mountains, the trees, all the other bits and pieces. And it creates a sense of alignment. Uh, so that's the sort of first thing is this sort of meshing of organizational um, capability and then strategy, like what should we actually do? Um, and the second thing, which is quite interesting to me is this whole aspect of, of agile or lean. And, and you just touched on this, that, you know, there's been a lot of attempts to create that sort of decentralized decision-making. So, you know, the Toyota example, they use, you know, scrum and they've got people on the production lines, building stuff and putting wheels on cars and all that kind of thing. And you should be able to go to any person, understand where they're at with their workflow and what they're working on. And that's kind of the promise of agile and, and other concepts like scaled agile as well, is that, you know, decentralize some of the decision-making, get inputs from everybody, make sure that the teams know what they're working on. But, you know, a lot of organizations try it and then it doesn't work. Uh, you know, it falls over or it, it becomes a sort of shallower version of, of some of the, what those core principles stand for. And so that's what I quite find interesting about worldly mapping. One thing I want to um, ask you about, Ben, is, is about this idea of frameworks and your article unpacking why people don't really care a lot about frameworks. You know, they're easily forgotten. Uh, people... Uh, we'll look at something and it's a PowerPoint, for example, they put it up on the wall and then they forget about it. And then they go on with business as usual. What do you think are some of those challenges around um, creating frameworks or using things like worldly mapping when it comes to aligning people, giving them direction and actually sticking to it to see um, business value realized? Yeah, I think there's like an interesting path we can walk here through, you know, understanding what worldly mapping actually is, like what it tries to do with you know, we use the word landscape a bit, trying to understand what the terrain from a competitive standpoint um, actually is. Um, weaving our way through, the, I think, the idea of what is like you know, business and agility as a concept, but also how we think about methodologies. And then also, in particular, what we do with frameworks um, or how we engage with frameworks, whether that works or it doesn't work. Um, I, I really like the way that you started this whole like thread, right, with constancy of purpose. Um, I, I think probably one of the single greatest failures in most modern organizations is the uh, complete failure to create constancy of purpose about what it is that we're trying to do. And I would say that that's not a, um, a failure of ability, but a failure of um, having the chance to learn how to speak in ways that people understand and learning how to tell the right stories is the way that my mentor, Jay Bloom, would, would say. Um, oftentimes, we have a situation where, you know, from from you know layers of the organization from top to bottom, like you end up not making sense to each other, and so a lot of this is about figuring out ways to create common ground um, across those layers 
not, not so much to like create the perfect resonant um, layer upon layer upon layer translation system, but to, to even just make sure that at a most at the most basic level that things make sense. Um, I, I truly believe that you know I should you know if I'm, if I'm on the line doing some work that I should be able to understand what it is that I'm here to do. I should have heard it so much, and I should have been able to ask questions about it, and I should be able to engage with it and and challenge it, and then come out the other end going, oh, I see, we are here to do this. And this project that I'm working on fits into that in this way. And so the work that I'm doing today on this project is going to enable the project to succeed as a result uh, and cascade it up as a result. So like, I, I truly believe that kind of thing is possible. Um, but most of the time, I think the, the fear of engaging in such frank communication about what it is that we're here to do, um, in particular, the fear of being seen as, as having failed, like make, as an executive, if you make predictions and then you completely mess that up, um, if the organization fails to follow through, uh, what you will end up with is, you know, disbelief, right? Um, and so I think that can be scary. The, the trick is the feedback loops part of this. And this is where the business agility thing kind of comes into. At any point in time, what we're really trying to do is connect action into the way that we make decisions. And so instead of getting, making things bigger and bigger, like I think the, like the waterfall methodologies for software tend to be like plan it all out up front. Although if you read some of the original papers, there are loops. Uh, don't think too hard about it, though. Um, agility is kind of like this idea like, hey, we should, we should pop our heads back up every once in a while after we've been taking some action and, and see whether or not we're getting closer to the goal or not. Um, and I think part of what we're trying to do is we're trying to make it so that we're not basically training the organization into a state of learned helplessness. Like if we are basically saying, okay, person here, do this work, work on this project. And next week, that entire division gets laid off and enough people, or like, let's say that that project gets shut down or what have you. And, and people don't know why they can't connect. Like what, what purpose did we fulfill? I, I my life's work was in that. What, what happened? Mm. Uh, you're basically undoing the ability for someone to believe that they have agency and have purpose in a system. So what worthy mapping I think is trying to do is it's trying to define some common ground so that people can say, oh, I see where I fit into this picture. Uh, and just concretely, like a map is a, um, it's kind of two things, right? It's, it's, a, it's a chain of needs first and foremost. Mm. And a chain of needs is composed of a user or several users at the top, um, their needs as well, like wh how, what kind of benefits they're getting, what kind of pain relief they're receiving. Um, and then a, a relationship structure, a dependency tree, um, all the way down from top to bottom of all the things in our systems that produce that value for those users. So an easy example is if you're thinking about the pandemic, um, my family, let's say is a user, my family needs health and safety. And one of the, the organizational capabilities, you know, my family as an organization that we deploy is capabilities like social distancing and capabilities like mask wearing and so on. Um, and I'm sure like ordering groceries online fits into that and things like that. So those are the organizational capabilities we leverage to produce that benefit of health and safety. So an organization is no different. Um, it is, you know, you have your marketing technology that is producing some sort of benefit for people doing the work. Um, it's a chain of needs and as long as each of those parts of that system is, is behaving, as long as it is actually acting in a way that we expect it to, um, that it matches the purpose that we have, we've designed for it, then the implication is that the system will be fully functioning 
and we'll be producing the needs for the users in the market as well as our internal users, et cetera. Now that just value chain concept gets um, placed um, along a spectrum. We usually go left to right of this concept that Simon Wardley researched and, and pulled out called evolution. Um, it's, a, it's a way of recognizing the qualities of things with respect to capitalism. And basically there are four stages of evolution, genesis, custom built, product and rental services, and commodity and utility services. And those four stages each have distinct qualities. And so anything that exists within capitalism goes through those four stages or it dies. It yeah. starts out in genesis, it continues to evolve as long as there's benefit to it continuing to exist because in capitalism, people want to make money and they want to uh, invest in things to make them better in order to gain that advantage, in order to make that money, et cetera. That's kind of the, the, the predictable behavior of capitalism. And so over time, there's this constant pressure on everything that you know of that exists within the capitalistic system. It's getting pushed from left to right from Genesis into commodity of, over time. Uh, and so you take power as an example of that. Um, power is in the walls. It's something that's almost invisible to us. It's constantly working. It's rarely failing. It's certain we have expectations about it. Um, and compare that commodity to something in Genesis, like uh, say our, our artificial intelligence algorithms that we think we understand how they work, but we in fact don't. And so we're doing things like embedding biases into them and so on. And so it's a high failure place. And actually that's okay because we expect things in Genesis to fail because we're, it's the new potential future value that we're investing in in order to pull it into the market. So we place each part of our value chain, you know, our chain of needs along that axis of evolution. And what it does is it produces a concise artifact that lays out the assumptions that we have about how the system works from the standpoint of its parts and how those parts relate. And then also how capitalism is affecting the system, which means each of these parts is under pressure to evolve from left to right. And we're stating our assumptions about where we think each thing is. Now, bluntly, one of the first things people get from that is they, they sit down and they put things along the evolutionary axis. And then they realize that, oh, wow, there's a bunch of stuff that we have in custom built. And uh, I think the rest of the market has already moved on and is assuming that those are either late products or commodities. Mm. And the implication is, why are we custom building stuff that other people are just buying off the shelf? Why are we wasting our precious time, resources, and effort on something like that when, in fact, we could be investing that into actual differentiating qualities in the market as opposed to, I don't know, going out and rebuilding a CRM or something like that? So that is the my somewhat long-winded answer. Um, when it comes to frameworks in general, I think people don't like to learn frameworks unless they can see how they're immediately valuable. Mm. And I'll leave it at that because I think there's a lot to say there. Mm. And there is a lot to say there. We're getting into this space of understanding, defining what situational awareness is. And, you know, to use your example on, you use those stages of evolution to determine where the gaps are. So are we custom building software um, where we don't actually need to? Is that a, a inefficiency there? Or is there a loss of, um, loss of value because we're building things we really don't need to, to meet those customer needs? And uh, when it comes to that, th uh, to me, that is uh, quite a new way of thinking and a new way for product teams to think as well. 
a lot of product teams don't think about the competitive landscape <laughs> in, in a lot of ways. They're thinking about their roadmap. They're thinking about what their OKRs are, you know, objective to key results or their key performance indicators. They're looking at meeting targets. You know, if you talk to most product managers, that's what they're focusing on. I used to work for an airline and they had a team of 25 to 30 product managers across all different parts of their business. And big part of that was creating roadmaps, you know, um, un understanding the, uh, like the situation that they're in, the opportunities that exist, and then how they're going to go build those capabilities out over different quarter horizons and uh, over a year or two years and things like that. But the gap there is the matching, the understanding, the competitive landscape, your own capabilities, and then how does that sit with what you're working on currently? Do you need to custom build something? Or are we not even looking at Genesis ideas at the moment? Uh, you know, are we, are we playing in the commodity space and our competitors are actually playing in the Genesis space and we're going to lose a lot of ground because of that. I think of companies, um, and I'd love your thoughts on this, Ben. I think of companies like Blockbuster, <laughs> you know, um, they became, they were quite novel, um, renting out movies, going into a, a store to rent out movies and games you know, 50, 60 years ago, that was really novel because the rise of television and um, cassette tapes and then DVDs and things like that, you know, created this environment where they could make money by renting out um, those, uh, those products. But now where are they? There's only one blockbuster store in the world because they played so much in the commodity space. They doubled down on those specific areas where they're, they're already dominating the market and their teams were working on proving that. And that was physical locations. And then you had players like uh, Netflix come in and they were playing in the Genesis space using the internet to stream video. And they lost their advantage over time. And so tell me a bit about situation awareness. How do you see it playing out within teams? Is that a problem? Do you think there's a lack of that awareness of the competitive landscape? Um, how do you see that playing, playing out with product teams? So when I hear like the discussion around like targets and OKRs and you know, t basically like talking about roadmaps and all this kind of stuff. It, it reminds me that I think as humans, we have a bit of an addiction to certainty. And so the reaction that we have to situations of increasing complexity, or at least, uh, I guess, an overwhelming amount of information, um, given our limited ability to, to actually process all that information and to make sense of it and to make decisions about it, we tend to oversimplify uh, arbitrarily so. Um, and so we do what I would, um, I'm going to be a little bit brutal here, but I think that a lot of the OKR work, a lot of the, the target kind of based stuff, I think the road mapping, like it's, it's basically um, busy work. It's, it's sure. It makes us feel good. Sure. It gives us a, a, some semblance of purpose, right. That, you know, we can at least have a thing that we've worked on together, um, but it's not actually going to change the game. And, and here's why when we have these systems and they've been around for a while, over time, there will be drift, right? The system will um, have been built originally to fulfill a particular purpose, uh, some kind of vision. And then as time passes, as needs change, as the market shifts underneath us, um, organizations will continue to adapt, but they won't prune. And so what ends up happening is you have parts of the system that are behaving um, kind of cancer-like in the sense that they're, they're just continuing to grow for growth's sake, or they're just continuing to fulfill a purpose that may or may not even make sense to exist anymore. And so until you can tell me that from start to finish, value how value is being delivered through the organization, I have a doubt 
about whether or not the organization ought to exist. In fact, I, you know, this is probably a little bit, um, uh, I'll say the words uh, hyperbolic, um, but I kind of have this belief that most organizations don't deserve to exist um, unless, until they can prove to me that they should exist and that they are engaging in a purposeful kind of way with the world. Um, I, I think a lot of this obsession with market, uh, sort of quarter by quarter growth, quarter by quarter numbers and so on is like obsessively short-term thinking. Mm -hmm. And so the, the way we're willing to ignore complexity, pretend that it's not there and oversimplify as a result um, leads us to bad decision-making. So start from, from the most basic assumption. What do you think the organi organization is here to, to do? Like whose needs is it here to meet? And I swear, if I enter another enterprise organization and they can't tell me who they're there to serve or why their team exists and like what needs they're there to meet, um, I, I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to explode. But <laughs> I, well, I, I, don't, I don't really like, I'm not angry. I'm not frustrated. I'm just like, I guess I'm not surprised anymore. And yeah. when it comes to global thinking, you know, thinking about the whole system, um, I just suspect that uh, most of our organizations are not behaving in purposeful ways. Mm -hmm. So then you bring in the question of Blockbuster and situational awareness. I think Blockbuster is a lovely example because I mean, they did video streaming, right? Like it's not like they were mm -hmm. stuck in the past in the sense that they didn't try new things. It's that they were overcommitted to previous ways of working. They were overcommitted to late fees. They were overcommitted to those previous business models even though they were dabbling in, in the future, right? Um, and I think it's it's what Simon Worley calls inertia. It's the overcommitment to past models that ties us down to the to the past, but also um, kind of is a is a, an anchor around our neck here. Um, the trouble is, it's really, really, really hard to confront uncomfortable realities whenever there's so much work and effort going into to furthering them, to maintaining them, to continuing them. Mm. If you have someone who is working in an organization for five plus years and you realize that the market is suggesting that the skills that they provide are no longer going to be needed in that future space, from an idealistic point of view, we would say, how can we re repurpose this amazing, lovely human capabilities? How can we help this person like reskill and learn new things and, and become something that um, the market needs? But the truth of the matter is like, their identity is very much wrapped up in doing the job that they've been doing for five plus years. And so the way that we go around this is that we like, we lay off a bunch of people and we, we make, you know, friendly excuses about why we had to do that and how it was convenient and all that kind of stuff. Right. So Blockbuster, you know, overcommitted, but not for no reason. Right. There were people there, good people who wanted to do good work and who were, you know, they understood what their job was. And they just wanted to keep doing that job. And, and I think it was an avoidance of uncomfortable truths that led to the demise of, of companies like Blockbuster and so on. Now, I wasn't there. So uh, if you know uh, any sort of counterfactual kind of perspective on that, mm -hmm. come at me on Twitter. I'm at Hired Thought and you can fight me on that. I love getting <laughs> fights on there. But to your point around the situational awareness piece, yeah. like people don't agree about what is. Like, they don't agree about even the things that exist in the world. Mm. I, I hinted at it earlier about people not understanding who they're there to serve, who the users are. Yeah. Like step zero, who do you serve? Step one, what do they need? Step two, what do you do to fulfill that need? Right? Like what are the capabilities that you put towards meeting those needs? 
and in what way do they relate and in what way do they connect to the larger market? And like, there's lots of interesting questions there about what the full dependency stack is. Cause man, th there are a lot of things you depend on that you aren't even aware of right now. Um, let let's not talk about mainframes at the moment, but like situational awareness, like the potential for being situational aware is near infinity. There is no stopping point because there's always more to know, but you just need to know more than others. And for your own self, you need to know enough to be competent and to actually create and design and transition from and to different kinds of purposeful systems. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of overlaps here with, you know, some of the buzzwords in a lot of uh, companies that are trying to do things like uh, digital transformation, which is really just, you know, shorthand for, <laughs> you know, we're, we're trying to uh, embrace technology in ways that we haven't in the past. <clears throat> but one of those buzzwords are being data driven or customer obsessed, you know, these sort of notions of, oh, we're data driven. So we make better quality decisions. And I like your challenge, Ben, because it's not, it's not so much about using data. It's not so much about being customer obsessed. It's about the frameworks that you live in. It's the fishbowl that you swim in. Uh, and who's in that fishbowl? Because the frameworks and, the, and the, the ways in which companies operate will determine how strategy is articulated. And then it feeds into things like, okay, what are we going to build for our users? You know, how are we going to um, innovate? Why should we innovate? How much do we invest in, in innovation? So there's, there's this really interesting paradigm that, you know, companies that get trapped within frameworks that um, have derived value in the past, they actually become kind of like a snare, like a golden cage. Uh, it's very hard to get out of that way of thinking uh, when the market and the, the competitive landscape changes. And it's changing faster than ever, Ben. In the past 10 years, we've seen so many companies uh, come into existence. I, I read a stat the other day that in 10 years, the marketing technology industry in itself, so looking at software vendors and you know all kinds of different um, types of companies that serve marketers and digital teams, yeah, that's grown by 7,000% since 2010. And so when you look at that, you see, wow, we're in a very unique uh, place in time where we're having rapid change, extremely fast, and uh, companies that are very slow to adapt to that. And I don't blame them. You know, like if you look at some legacy companies that have been around for 100 years, say, take, for example, Disney, you know, been around forever, and they've had to really reshift and change how their business model works. And somehow they're doing it. Uh, which is fantastic. You know, if you look at Disney Plus, they've been able to drive huge amounts of revenue in a very short period of time. We're talking about 12 to 18 months by, by switching to a streaming service. So they've taken the good bits of their brand, like their, their brand capital, their content, all of those assets. They've been able to leverage that into new competitive landscapes like streaming and, uh, and then doubling down into other experiences. Um, and so, so I thought, I think that's just quite interesting, this, this landscape and how it's shifting so fast and why it's forcing the issue of, maybe we should re, re, uh, rename this podcast. Originally the, the podcast name was going to be, nobody cares about your framework, but maybe we should change the name to let's blow up your framework um, and think differently <laughs> uh, about how you're meeting the needs of your user. And one more point on this, I think, you know, you, what you mentioned about the value chain, who's your user, what their needs are, and what are the capabilities that you need to build to meet those needs? It's very simple. 
it's a very simple way of thinking about your users, but it does get um, conflated and confused a lot, I think, um, in a lot of product teams with other things that are happening. Sometimes product teams are not thinking about their customer. They're actually thinking about their stakeholders and their needs. And so there's a lot of complexity there as well. Uh, but I like that it's simple. You can bring this, reduce it down to those three core aspects in the value chain to get a sense of direction, a starting point. There's this interesting quote uh, in the article about worldly mapping. It sort of it maps the dispositions of power in capitalism. So, you know, different uh, companies in a capitalist framework have different types of power. So you'd have a commodity brand. For example, in Australia, we have Vegemite. I'm not sure if you've heard of that. You know, they're a commodity. Vegemite <laughs> is like a spread on toast, but you know, they're huge. Everyone has a jar of Vegemite in their pantry. So there's like a commodity brand, right? You know, the different types of market powers. So how do you think, you know, branches start, start working towards creating that power? How do they, how do they inform that strategy? How does that change things like innovation? What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, there, there's a lot to say. And, and I think the first point to make is that worthy mapping oftentimes requires getting into, um, I, I think it's blank with respect to what. Um, so, so no matter what your you know, buzzword of the day might be, whether it's digital transformation or brand or personalization or influencers or design thinking or innovation or internet of things or NFTs or Bitcoin or whatever, blockchain, like while we're at it, like whatever um, other words I could add here to make you feel sick, um, it's always not specific enough for people to make sense of it. Uh, it, it literally says nothing to anyone to come in and say, we're in the midst of a digital transformation. Um, I, I, have, I have some very bad words that pop into my head whenever someone says those words to me. And it's because it's missing uh, the, the with respect to what part of this. And I think like those words can have meaning. And in fact, like um, if you wanna go on a philosophical exploration of this, it's like Wittgenstein, um, the, the second work of Wittgenstein, like focusing on like the, the games we play with words. Yeah. Like if I say water, um, in different ways. It might mean different things. It might be a demand. It might be a request. It might be a description. It's like the context that actually tells us what the word means. But if the context is missing, what can the word mean in and of itself? And, it, and the answer to that, I think, is whatever the humans in the room decide it means, yeah. which means that every time you use one of those words without being concrete about the context that that word is being used within, like digital transformation with respect to the tools that we use for customer relationship management or what have you, right? Without that meaningful specificity, I think that means people are filling in whatever meanings that they happen to, you know, have at hand at the time. Yeah. Uh, I think you're actually training them to ignore what you say because they'll go, huh, well, I thought it meant this, but they use it in a weird way. They must be gibberish. They must not know what they're talking about. So I, I think for as executives in particular, you have to be careful about the words you use. I think you have to be careful about being clear. Um, otherwise people will just dismiss you as, as speaking gibberish. Mm. So there, there's that angle on it. And then there's like the capitalist kind of frame of it, the knowledge creation frame of it angle. Like when you decide what to call some bucket of activities, when you decide what words to use together, and then you share that you're going to use that, that, you know, word to describe that bucket of activities with others, what you start to, to do is you start to create a, uh, a jargon, right? Like a, a language and not like an exclusionary jargon, like a meaningful, a technically specific jargon 
that you can share with people in order to have semantically dense conversations. And semantically dense conversations means you don't have to constantly be recreating context, recreating an explanation of like, oh, uh, it's not digital transformation. It's bit by bit replacing our old legacy custom built systems that because we built those way back then uh, when, because th that was the only way we could get them. Now we're realizing we're part of a connected marketplace and now we're going to replace um, individual parts of our systems one by one using a strangler pattern as we're coding. Like, like you don't have time to do that when you're, whenever you're having, having meetings. Like yes, do it once at the beginning, but then you know that digital transformation means that long drawn out set of things. Problem is like, that's hard, right? Defining that language and defining the context within, within which it applies. So uh, my little rant there, I guess, is like, oftentimes we, we miss that part of it. And so it's literally knowledge creation. It's yes. knowledge creation and information sharing, making sure that people know what the meaningfulness of the words is. Um, and uh, what I'll say too is, is in, with respect to the question of transformation writ large and, and generally organizational change management, um, like go on YouTube and Google DevOps progressions, teaching old DevOps new tricks by Andrew Schaefer. It's a talk that you will not forget about transformation and it applies to everything, literally everything where you need to get from one state of being that is not performing as the way, the way you would like it to be um, to another state of being, something that you need to transition towards. So I feel like I missed something important in your question. So please let me know what I missed and we can dig into that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, uh, just a side note here. Uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein is actually my favorite philosopher. So, so there you, oh, yay. I, lo I love his analogy that, you know, if a lion could talk, we'd never understand it anyway. You know, um, <laughs> and, and it's kind of like, you know, if the, uh, if the chief innovation officers uh, could learn how to talk, we probably wouldn't understand him or her either. Um, but I, I guess the, I guess the, the uh, what you're getting at here is that uh, the semantics, the the context in which uh, words are derived, and and uh, in a podcast um, uh, a few a few podcasts back, we talked about how how um, you know a lot of the words that we use in technology are very uh, very flexible words. So, for example, yes. if you're if you're a, if you're a doctor and you say to your nurse hand me a scalpel uh, a scalpel is very clearly defined in the industry most nurses are trained to know what that is yes in wordly terms it's a commodity concept it's it's a it's a like one answer to that question there are no other answers exactly there's one answer and then you know because technology is in that genesis uh, phase of evolution a lot of the words are really freeform and flexible like digital transformation what does that mean <laughs> you know thought experience. leadership thought leadership uh personal brand you know so there's a lot of interesting words that you know i think is just symptomatic of um, a lot of sort of genesis type thinking in the industry which is quite interesting interesting um but while we're talking about i guess the industry writ large and and what's actually happening and I did mention it before how there's been so much change um, in the world of marketing tech. What I'm seeing is that there's a lot of products becoming uh, commoditized. They're, head, they're definitely heading in that direction. You know, there's like thousands and thousands of vendors and software um, software offerings out there. You know, if you look at something simple like AB testing tools, you know, there's heaps out there. But what's happening, yep. particularly the enterprise side of side of things, is that even though there's more competitors, the 
the features and the capabilities should get simpler because there's more competitors in that space. So you need to differentiate in ways that, you know, would simplify um, those offerings and how people understand them. Um, and it also should drive down costs in a commodity market. You know, you should have cheaper products um, typically, but what, I, what we're actually seeing is that it's the opposite. Uh, the, the technology products becoming more complex, more features, more things to think about. And it's actually becoming more expensive as well. <laughs> right, and, so, right. and so how how do you think this technology landscape has been influenced by by perhaps the worldly doctoring of those stages of evolution? Like, How do you see some of that happening? And, and what's your take? Well, the, there's an interesting thing that happens whenever something reaches a commodity state, right? Where basically what we're saying is it is totally understood it is extremely repeatable. It almost never fails. It becomes like a, a, an underlying dependency of a lot of systems. And um, people start having expectations. Like the, the power in your wall is a great example of it. But you know, in, in marketing technology, you might think of it as, th as things like, um, like your SMS uh, provider or your, your email infrastructure or your um, pixel tracking or what have you. Like these are things that ought to just work every single time. And, and so they're, they're becoming invisible parts of our stack that, you know, we just assume is there and is working. Now, one of the tricks with this, though, in worthy mapping, you know, there are a couple um, interesting principles that come to the surface. Um, it, you know, obviously, it's Simon's opinions about which of these things are important. Um, but I think that they're worth digging into. And one of them is Jevons paradox. And the rough idea of that is, you would think that as something becomes more standardized and knowable and, and you know high volume operations, efficient, that kind of thing, that it would get cheaper. Um, but the unfortunate reality is most often um, it unleashes pent up demand. Mm. Uh, like once a thing becomes available, like latent demand in the system starts to like actually match itself with the supply. And so what you end up with is greater usage rather than the same usage at a lower cost. And so you end up with a greater spend overall. Um, so there's there's that kind of dynamic that's at play. I mean, you know, custom things are expensive just broadly, and I think that you know there are a lot of organizations trying to transition piece by piece into using these uh, commodity tools, but they're not aware of this kind of like a lot of people talk about cloud migrations, for example. They think that they're going to save money by going to the cloud, and uh, I have news for you, um, it's not going to quite work that way. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of like interesting things there around like what does hybrid mean, not from the standpoint of multi-cloud or, or on-premise and uh, on on or in the cloud for a singular workload, but in general organizations that are specifically leveraging specific capabilities with speci within specific contexts. So like I am using cloud for these specific workloads because they provide burst capacity or you know if if suddenly there's holiday shopping spree, and we need extra compute available, we, we will use the cloud for those purposes, but everything else we're using in-house data centers or what have you. Yep. Like there, there's a lot of like ways we could examine that. I, I think what's missing most of the time is the executives are, are missing the, the context in which those new capabilities need to be used. And then they just kind of do an all-in kind of thing where it's like, oh, uh, well, the industry report is saying that this is gonna be, this is a common practice and, eight out of 10 firms are doing it. So we should definitely do it too. Cause we want to keep up with, you know, the, the current practice of things, the current state of things. Uh, when in reality, like the, the, like you're going to be doing a transition to that thing over time. And it's not actually going to sat satisfy all your needs. It's not going to be a, a singular thing that answers all problems. It, 
there's like a spend problem, like an attention spend problem. You, you can't literally spread yourself so thin yeah. that you start to like fall apart. Yeah. And so I think, I think a lot of folks are running into that problem almost constantly, especially in the enterprise context. Yeah. But um, yeah, there, there's a lot to be said for thinking very carefully about in which context each new technology belongs uh, or is useful. And uh, Goldratt would say, like Goldratt as in the Eliyahu M. Goldratt, the author of The Goal, um, which by the way, is, is a lovely book conceptually, but a horrible novel, but I still recommend you read it, um, is about thinking about how, you know, in these systems, there can only be one constraint, but also when we're dealing with technology change, we have to also pay attention to people in process. We have to understand that the policy part of these technologies is what's going to hold us back, yeah. not whether or not the, the technology itself is inside the boundaries of our organization. Yeah, that's, that's um, some interesting thinking. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it is really just going back to that value chain. It's going back to understanding your users' needs, understanding um, you know, what kind of capabilities you can build around those needs. And uh, there's a famous quote from Steve Jobs, actually, from his, last, from his last ever live interview. I think it was at the D8 conference back in 2010. And he said that consumers will vote if something meets their needs. They'll vote with their dollars. They'll give you a thumbs up or they'll give you a thumbs down. And when in an enterprise context, there's no thumb, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. who, who does the, who does a song and dance, who talks about, who inspires the leaders because there's an abstraction or um, there's a lack, there's a situational awareness gap of the people who use the technology products in a business and the people who actually buy them. And so there's this really interesting disconnect that happens and, um, and it means that the people who use the products don't get to vote um, often. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Yeah. And I think we see like, there's like an obsession too with like trying to get more to like what the user needs and all that kind of stuff. The, the trick is like, you can't just focus on one user. There are many users, right? There's regulators, there's buyers, there's customers, there's all sorts of state and local entities and government entities and so on. You can't ignore that all those people have needs with respect to your system. Like paying people on time and submitting the fact that you paid them this much amount of money to the government and actually telling the government what you paid them and so on. Like that's a need that the government has of you, mm. a company that is doing marketing things. Like you have to be aware of all of it and accommodate as much of it as you can. So it's, it's really about not oversimplifying and just saying, oh, it's just the customers or, oh, it's just the buyers, right? So there's a lot to be said around that. Yeah. And that, that's uh, it's a really great topic as well. Um, hopefully we can get you on the podcast another time to talk about um, dealing with that level of complexity, multiple users across multiple needs and how those value chains are um, architected. But uh, if like I could chill for one more book real quick, if you don't mind, <laughs> like, <laughs> it, it, for, for the, for the executives and other folks making really hard decisions. Um, I, I highly, highly recommend another book called good strategy, bad strategy by Richard Remelt. I think one of the things that that book gets into is the problem of avoiding difficult decisions. And so I, I think there's a, there's a lovely power uh, couple of, of good strategy, bad strategy, and worldly mapping. So pick up those two uh, kind of bits of material and work on that. Mm, that's great. And I, I'd highly recommend that book as well. Um, it's, it talks to creating guiding policies 
uh, and understanding, you know, what are we actually trying to achieve? What are those things that are blocking it? Uh, and yeah, I highly recommend that book as well. It's, it's a fantastic read. Um, when I read it a few years ago, it really changed how I thought about strategy, um, like pure strategy, people would probably call it, um, you know, just abstracted away from any sort of a particular application, uh, which is, which is really great. But I'd like to finish up with a fun question. Uh, so one thing I've heard you regularly tweet about is that worldly mapping can kind of be applied to them as any context. You know, we, we've talked a lot about the technology industry here, but what's one like really fun way you've seen worldly mapping applied? Um, what, what's one example? Yeah, I, I think um, the lovely thing about worldly mapping is that it's basically philosophy dressed up in a strategy framework. Mm. Um, it often starts with some basic kind of questions of ontology, like what are the things that exist and how do they exist? What are they like? How do they be? What are their qualities? What are their relationships? All that kind of fun stuff, which makes it super flexible. Like I've um, obviously seen worldly mapping used for technology concerns, for organizational concerns, like org design, that kind of stuff. But I've also personally used it for, um, like I've mapped myself and I know I'm not the only one who's done that. Mm. So yeah, I'm a bit of a nerd in that way, but the more abstract kind of squishier stuff um, actually seems to work pretty well with worthy mapping and so on. Yeah. Um, but my absolute favorite so far is, is someone who uh, made a map of their um, St. Patty, Patty's Day kind of celebration plan and it's, it's just like a good goofy oh, wow. little fun example that it, it's just so clear like you you get it right away and um <laughs> i'll have to find the link to that um and maybe i don't know if you can put it in the show notes or not but like uh it's just a lovely little example like if you want to see what a worldly map is and you just need a quick fun little example um that isn't the kind of standard like cup of tea example um the saint patty's day is is great that's great well this conversation has been enlightening um, and very helpful. So uh, thank you, Ben, for joining me on Making Sense of MarTech. Where can we find you on the internet? Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Juan. I really appreciate you taking the time to introduce these ideas to the folks in the audience. I know that as if they start digging into it, they'll get more and more curious. And um, I highly recommend that if you'd like to learn more and you just need someone to sort of point you in the right direction about how to you know, learn these concepts or at least pick up some examples that uh, are, make sense to you from your context, from the standpoint of whichever part of the world industry-wise or position-wise you're working from, I would say reach out to me on Twitter, at Hired Thought. Um, always feel welcome to direct message me. Um, you can also email me, ben at hiredthought.com. And if you'd like to attend any of the events that we have come up, we have coming up, we're doing live streams and we're also doing workshops. You can just go to LWM dot events. So that's LWM dot events. Um, we'd love to have you. We try to help as many as we can, uh, as often as we can. So we'd, we'd love to have you as well. Great. Well, thank you again. Thanks, Juan.